some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Barton Key stood in Washington, D.C.'s Lafayette Square, waving his handkerchief in the air, hoping to catch the eye of his lover. It was their signal, well, one of their signals anyway. Another way Key would get his lady's attention would be to hang a string from the balcony of a love nest he had rented in a poor section of town, a section no one would think to look for Barton Key. He was, after all, the son of the famous Francis Scott Key, whose poem written during the War of 1812 became the lyrics of the Star-Spangled Banner. And Barton was no slouch himself, having been appointed U.S. District Attorney of Washington, D.C. by both presidents, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan. He had waved his white handkerchief countless times from his little spot outside of the clubhouse, where the city's rich and powerful would hang out to tell stories and drink booze near the White House. Usually, what would happen was that Key's love interest, a 23-year-old woman named Teresa, would spy him from a window of her home and signal back something in the affirmative to let him know that she would meet him shortly. But this day, Key's signal was intercepted by Teresa's husband, who happened to be Key's really good friend. And that husband was pissed. Key didn't know it yet, but this day... February 27, 1859, would be his last day alive. And his death would not only be one of the first trials to issue turn-of-the-screw daily updates, allowing readers worldwide to hang on its every twist and turn, but it would also trigger the very first time anyone used a temporary insanity defense in America. People might not be familiar with this. It happened two years before the Civil War, when a murder unfolded in Lafayette Square, near where the White House is. The case and the trial would change America forever. Rarely are the players in a criminal case as well-respected and well-connected as those in today's story. Francis Scott Key is best known as the writer of our National Anthem's lyrics, but when he was alive... He was known first as a talented attorney. He served as the fourth United States District Attorney for the District of Columbia, an important post representing the government in cases heard in federal court. Key and his wife, a woman named Mary Taylor Lloyd when he married her, had four children. Their oldest was Philip Barton Key II, a man named after Francis Key's uncle who had been a mentor to the lawyer. The uncle had been a history maker in his own right, serving as a U.S. circuit judge nominated by President John Adams and, later, as a U.S. house rep. To keep everyone straight, the uncle Philip Barton was called Philip, while Francis's son went by middle name Barton. Barton, the son, was destined to follow the professional footsteps of his father and great-uncle and became a lawyer himself. 
He married a woman named Ellen Swan, with whom he had four children, three daughters and a son. One day in 1855, Ellen put her hand to her chest and said, What's this? Ben died as Barton watched on, helpless. After that, Philip Martin Key was a widower and considered extremely handsome. They said he was the most handsome man in the in the district uh, and had four daughters. He uh, was also just famously flirtatious. This is Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. He researched the case a few years ago for his nearly million followers. By all accounts, Barton had loved his wife. When she died, he told reporters he had loved her like no woman on earth, and he doubted he could ever be happy with another. He'd been widowed for about two years when a man named Daniel Sickles entered his life, bringing with him his beautiful wife, Teresa. Sickles was about the same age as Barton. They'd been born in 1819 and 1818, respectively. And while his father hadn't, say, written the national anthem, he was still a pretty accomplished guy who worked as a patent attorney. Sickles was raised not wanting for much, and he felt a lot of pressure from his parents. His dad could be overbearing and demanding, his mom overattentive, but it's clear they tried to give their son the best of everything, and that included a stellar education. When Sickles was a teenager, they sent him to Glen Falls Academy, which was about 200 miles north of where they lived in Manhattan. But Sickles had a definite stubborn streak And at the academy, he quickly started butting heads with the school's headmaster and was expelled. Instead of returning home to face his parents, he got a job at the newspaper near his school instead. There, he worked as what was known as a printer's devil. His job was to lay out letters onto a plate that would then be used to print the day's news onto newsprint. Sickles kept that job for about a year and a half and then came home feeling pretty confident he'd learned more valuable stuff than he would have had he stayed enrolled in school. His time getting his hands dirty with ink left an impression. He'd read so much news and had become enamored with politics. After he left Glen Falls, he returned to Brooklyn and began stumping for presidential candidate Martin Van Buren. When he decided to go to college, he lodged with the DuPont family. The patriarch, Lorenzo DuPont, was an opera librettist. Meaning that, like Francis Scott Key, he didn't write the music, but he wrote the words. He's a fascinating character. I mean, this guy collaborated with Mozart. DuPont also taught Italian at a university, and he served as something of a mentor for Sickles, which wasn't always a good thing. He was, to phrase it delicately, a horn dog. He'd lost jobs because of sex scandals, and most historians believe that he was passing off a daughter as adopted, when in reality the kid was probably biologically his, but not his wife's. She was likely born to a mistress. That daughter was named Maria who married another famed composer, this one named Antonio Baggioli, who was... This music teacher in New York was a very famous music teacher, was considered very important to the development of music in the United States. Maria and Antonio had one child, 
a daughter named Teresa, born in 1832. She was urbane. She spoke like five languages. She was beautiful. Now, all of these people lived together, the whole DuPont family, as well as Daniel Sickles. When Sickles first arrived, Teresa would have been learning to walk. Her parents treated her like she was the center of their world, which she kind of was since she was an only child. She got excellent schooling and loved to learn. This was quite the combination, especially in the 19th century. By the time Teresa hit her teens, she was like an old soul talking with people far older than she was and talking intelligently about music and poetry and philosophy. And she was more than just beautiful. She was reportedly mesmerizing. There are no photos of her, and I suspect that the etchings that were eventually reproduced in newspapers didn't quite do her justice because she was described as almost otherworldly. One newspaper referenced her, quote, Italian luster and depth of eye, end quote. She had dark skin from her Italian heritage, lustrous dark hair and delicate features. One newspaper called her remarkable. I mean, by all accounts, this girl was a catch. Sickles was handsome as well, and while he didn't live with the DuPonts all that long, he did stay close with them. He visited year after year, watching as Teresa grew literally from a toddler to a not-quite woman. In the interim, Sickles studied. He attended New York University and studied law under none other than the future Union General Benjamin F. Butler, who was known as Spoons for his occupation of New Orleans during the Civil War. This is Ranger Matt Atkinson giving a talk on Sickles for the Gettysburg National Park Service. Under Benjamin Butler's tutelage, Sickles earned his law degree and passed the bar in 1843. He also got involved with Tammany Hall, a notorious New York political organization that was as powerful as it was shady. Daniel Sickles fit right in. His early years were marked already with graft. He was accused of stealing money from another man. He embezzled money meant for a political pamphlet and he was accused of mortgage fraud. The connections made, though, through Butler opened a new world to Dan Sickles, and that new world was politics. He quickly moved up the graft-plagued Tammany Hall political machine, which he literally had to fight in at different points with knife and gun and so forth. Through Tammany Hall, he became the corporation counsel to the city at age 28, despite all those things in his background. Along the way, Sickles kept the more controversial teachings of Lorenzo DuPont in mind. Dan liked prostitutes. He especially liked one in particular named Fanny White. She was hugely famous in New York in part because of her incredible business smarts. She ran a bordello on Mercer Street that I found cited in 1850s divorce complaints, as in, Your Honor, grant my divorce because I caught my husband at Fanny White's. Fanny fell in love with Dan, whom her servants referred to as her man. She bought him expensive suits, they ate at the best restaurants, and they drank like the kindred spirits they clearly were. Fanny's exploits with Sickles are described pretty frequently in a biography written about her. In one story, the two reportedly spent an evening drinking their way through a series of saloons before running into one that didn't allow women. Fanny threw on some men's clothes so the fun could continue. 
Fanny had two issues, though, that weren't easy to hide in men's clothing, so she was spotted, and the couple were thrown in jail overnight. It was her boobs. She was outed by her boobs. Sickles really didn't hide this relationship at all, nor did he listen to people who told him that it would ruin his political career. In 1846, he ran for the New York Assembly and won. He even brought Fanny to visit him in Albany and gave her a tour of the Capitol, which caused quite a scandal. And here was a prostitute in the Victorian era rubbing elbows with lawmakers. Problem was, anyone who admitted recognizing her would have to admit they knew her from rubbing other things. So Sickles got away with it. In 1856, he was elected as a New York state senator. He must have been incredibly charming because he made a lot of really powerful and dedicated friends. The lawyer-turned-politician James Buchanan, for example, loved the guy. He liked him so much that when Buchanan was appointed in 1853 as United States Minister to the United Kingdom, he tapped Sickles to be by his side. Sickles knew that many didn't approve of his extracurricular activities, but the nation's most powerful tended to look the other way, so he flat out didn't seem to care what social norms he was bucking. He was a lifelong philanderer, and one of his friends called him on it and said, you really got to stop being so public about your affairs. And he just said, well, you know, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody else, but that's really who I am. Fanny wasn't his only love interest. He had been watching Teresa mature, at least a bit. When she had reached the ripe old age of 15, Sickles homed in. He was more than twice her age when he proposed. Neither said her parents were pleased, but Teresa and Sickles seemed to be in a bit of a hurry. They got married in a civil ceremony without their parents' blessing. Then, once the families realized this thing was happening with or without them, they agreed to let the couple marry again 10 days later in a church. The date of the second wedding was September 27, 1852. The couple's one and only daughter, was born about seven months later. It seems there was a reason for the rush nuptials. Fanny was pissed that her beau got married and, according to her biography, she beat Sickles with a horsewhip. But his marriage didn't end his fun. He was married, and I think he truly loved this lady. I believe he did. But nevertheless, it was just a formality to him. In truth, this was true of a lot of Victorian marriages. Washington was just kind of crazy libertine at the time. I don't know if we really realized that. And I I don't know how much scandal it would be today, but there are all sorts of stories where uh, senators and congressmen were carrying on with each other's wives and uh, affairs and prostitutes and and, uh, bursts out of wedlock and all sorts of stuff going on. As much of a maverick as Daniel Sickles purported to be in some aspects of his life, he wasn't willing to buck this particular trend and stay faithful to his wife. And he had ample opportunity because of his jet-setting job, particularly when Buchanan asked him to be the Secretary of U.S. Legation in London. So he's married to this beautiful, intelligent, socialite woman, and he just cheats on her all the time. Now, Teresa had been an only child to devoted parents, and she was smart and beautiful and all the rest. So she no doubt was used to being the center of attention. Sickles really did seem to care for her and their daughter, Laura Buchanan Sickles, enough so that he had them move to Washington, D.C. when he was elected to the Senate in 1856. A lot of the men, and 
Congress was 100% men back then, left their families at home and visited places like Fanny White's on Mercer as often as they pleased. Sickles still frequented the brothels, but he went home to his wife at night. Along the way, Sickles befriended Barton Key, the man with the handkerchief from the intro. In fact, these two men had not just been friends, but political allies. Key had been appointed U.S. District Attorney for D.C. by one-term President Franklin Pierce. And when Buchanan surprised many by ousting him in the primary at the 1856 Democratic National Convention, he assumed he'd lose his job. New presidents often clean house and bring in their own people when elected. But Key appealed to Buchanan's buddy, Sickles, and Sickles went to bat for him, helping him keep the post. Key and Sickles had a lot in common. They were the same age. They were both lawyers and womanizers. They routinely had affairs with other men's wives. You'd think this might make Sickles a little suspicious when Key started hanging out with Teresa virtually nonstop. But Key said it was innocent, and Teresa said so too. And I guess Sickles put blinders on and chose to believe them. And he believed this again and again because he was confronted with rumors repeatedly. People would say, hey, Barton's seeing a lot of your wife, don't you think? Sickles asked Key about it, and Key said, don't be ridiculous. And you know what Sickles did? He believed him. He believed Key. This lasted well over a year. Key and Teresa were described by many as inseparable, especially when Sickles was out of town. She would have her carriage driver swing by and pick Key up, then direct that they take back streets to get where they were going. They would dance together at legendary parties Teresa was known for throwing. It was physical, of course, but probably emotional too. Anyone paying attention might have noticed that, in this day before widespread photography, the only image hanging in Key's home was a poster of a famous ballerina who was a dead ringer for Teresa. Throughout all of this, Sickles believed the relationship was chaste. But then, on February 24th, 1859, Sickles got a letter that would change all of their lives. The fateful letter arrived by messenger as Daniel Sickles readied for his day. Enclosed in a simple yellow envelope, it looked entirely benign, so Sickles tucked it into a pocket and forgot about it until later that night. When he finally opened it, he read a handwritten missive telling him intimate details about his wife and his friend. It was a gut punch. Sickles received an anonymous letter one evening telling him that his wife's having this affair with Barton Key, that they've rented a house uh, in the neighborhood north of the White House for carrying on their affair. This is author Chris DeRose talking to a reporter about his book, Star-Spangled Scandal, Sex, Murder, and the Trial That Changed America. And the letter is so specific that Sickles decides he has to investigate. The letter was signed RPG, and it read, quote, Dear Sir, with deep regret, I enclose to your address the few lines, but an indispensable duty compels me to do so, seeing that you are greatly imposed upon. There is a fellow, I may say, for he is not a gentleman by any means, by the name of Philip Barton Key and, I believe, the district attorney, who rents a house of a Negro man by the name of John A. Gray, situated on 15th Street between K and L streets. 
for no other purpose than to meet your wife, Mrs. Sickles. He hangs a string out of the window as a signal to her that he is in and leaves the door unfastened. And she walks in and, sir, I do assure you, he has as much the use of your wife as you have. With these few hints, I leave the rest for you to imagine. Most respectfully, your friend, RPG, end quote. To this day, no one knows who RPG was. Now, Sickles had heard rumors along these lines, and he might have dismissed this one too, but it was just so specific and detailed. And he figured, how hard could it be to look for this house and find out if Key is renting it? So he roped a friend into doing it. That guy, Samuel Butterworth, was a fellow lawyer. He agreed to help out and started to do some snooping. And sure enough, he found the home's owner, learned that he had started renting it months earlier, claiming that it was for a congressman who needed a home away from home. But he was the only man spotted going in and out. He was often joined by a lady whose face was usually covered by a shawl, but everyone knew who she was. They knew both of them, actually. And the house was in a poor area of town, but Key and Teresa were high-profile people, and Teresa was married, so word had spread. Sickles was basically the last to know. He confronted Teresa. After a weak attempt to deny it, she admitted everything. And this was February 26th, so two days after the letter had arrived. Sickles wanted Teresa to confess in writing, so she did. She wrote a surprisingly level-headed graphic account of the affair, including descriptions of where they did what and when. She would go to the house on 15th Street and undress. I did what wicked women do, she wrote. The most recent liaison had been Wednesday of that week, a day before the anonymous letter writer tipped off Sickles. After writing and signing the confession, Teresa had two women sign it as witnesses and then turned it over to Sickles. Teresa cried, Sickles cried, and the house was full of misery that night. Teresa was so upset and ashamed that she wouldn't let herself be comfortable in a bed. She slept on the floor in a separate room from her husband. One of her girlfriends happened to be visiting her and testified that Teresa was desolate that night. She also testified that Sickles wailed all night long, these animalistic-sounding sobs. The next morning, Sickles had a few friends over to talk to them about what he should do. Butterworth, the friend he had used as a sleuth, was among them. While he was talking, Sickles happened to look out his window, and he spotted Key waving his handkerchief. It was one of the ways Sickles now knew that his former friend signaled his wife for sex. Key had in his pocket a pair of opera glasses that he would use to spy at the Sickles' home, looking for Teresa to signal back from one of the windows. This morning, he didn't spot her. It was unusual, and the two had been joined at the hip for so long. So Key, completely oblivious to the fact that his affair was now not only known, but described in detail to Dan Sickles, walked around Lafayette Square, biding his time and waving his handkerchief every so often. Butterworth told Sickles he didn't have any good advice on how to handle this situation, but he also reportedly added that there was only one thing a man of honor could do. Butterworth left the house and walked past Key. 
Instead of telling the doomed man, hey, trouble's afoot, bud. You might want to stow away that hanky and watch your back. Butterworth made time-killing small talk instead. Meanwhile, Sickles grabbed three guns. Sickles loses it. Whether he loses his mind is something that gets discussed at trial, but loses it and goes outside wearing three guns under a trench coat on an unseasonably warm February day. He fires quite a few shots over the course of two or three minutes based on the eyewitness testimony. He was caught completely off guard. He'd seriously spotted Sickles walking toward him and reached out his hand in greeting. The first bullet went through that hand. Key stepped forward and the two struggled for a moment and Sickles dropped the gun. But Sickles shook free and pulled out another pistol. Unarmed, Key cried out, don't murder me, and threw the only item he had with him, a pair of opera glasses at Sickles. Now, normally Key would have had a gun in that pocket, but this day was Sunday, also known as bath day. He had changed suits. He apparently left his gun in his other coat. So he threw the opera glasses, which hit Sickles without effect, and fell to the ground. Sickles fired again. This bullet went into Key's thigh. Key, meanwhile, was backing up and screaming, Murder! Murder! Don't shoot me! Sickles was screaming too. You defiled my bed! Sickles pulled the trigger again, but the gun misfired. Sickles cocked it another time and shot Key in the chest at close range. He then pointed at Key's head and pulled the trigger one more time, intending a coup de grace, but the gun again misfired. Witnesses finally pulled him away before he could try another shot. This whole scene played out on Pennsylvania Avenue, within sight of the White House. This is Lafayette Park, middle of day, bright sunlight. You could see if you were in the White House in the right window, you could have seen this occurring. Witnesses carried Key to a nearby tavern. They could tell he was mortally wounded and asked if he had any message he wanted to give to his children. But he was unresponsive. He died without saying another word. Outside, Sickles paced and asked coldly, is the scoundrel dead? The story had all the elements you need to catch people's attention. I mean, rich players, forbidden sex, murder. And the reporters had access to a new invention that helped ensure readers got what they wanted. Samuel Morse and other inventors had created and fine-tuned the telegraph. At first, newsrooms weren't really interested because they just couldn't imagine any kind of news event that would warrant such a fast turnaround. Tomorrow would always be good enough, they figured. But when this story came along, the demand for details was so incredibly high that the telegraph was a godsend. Reporters swiftly sent their stories to editors nationwide. According to DeRose's book, the American Telegraph Company wired up to 2,500 words per hour. More than 16,000 words a day were sent to New York alone. The Associated Press alone telegraphed about 152,000 words, costing the wire service about $3,600. It was the most covered event in human history up to that point. So you had the telegraph running at full speed, transmitting thousands of words all over the country. And it was the first case that we all followed at the same time as Americans, the first scandal. And that speedy dissemination meant that the case was the talk of the town everywhere. At every dinner table in America, people were debating over this case and everyone had an opinion about it. Now, how Sickles turned himself in speaks to how connected he was. 
He went to the house of the U.S. Attorney General at the time and surrendered. Police arrived and whisked him off to jail, where he spent his first night in awful accommodations, reportedly waking up with his skin covered in bedbugs. Even though those were the conditions other prisoners had to endure, Sickles was moved into the jailer's office after that first night, and he was allowed visitors. Normally, this kind of crime would have been prosecuted by the U.S. District Attorney in D.C., but considering Sickles had just shot him to death, he was indisposed. Instead, a man who had filled in for Key over the years was appointed by the president, who, remember, is James Buchanan, one of Sickles' close friends. It would be the most talked-about trial in the nation's history. The man appointed to prosecute Daniel Sickles in the murder of Philip Barton Key was named Robert Ould, who amazingly didn't seem to care about how well-connected the accused was politically. And by all accounts, it doesn't sound like he had any intention of throwing the match. He argued forcefully to keep Sickles' supposed motive, his discovery of the affair, out of evidence. But generally, the judge kept ruling against him. Ould's stance was that Sickles' motive didn't really matter, and if you let him get away with this, it would mean that anyone could kill someone they're mad at. Despite being accomplished and even seeming pretty passionate about the case, Ould didn't have a lot of experience actually arguing criminal cases in a courtroom, and he was outmatched. He was up against some talented defense lawyers. James T. Brady is is still considered to be possibly one of the most talented uh, lawyers ever to sit the bar in in New York State. He tried dozens of murder trials. So Brady and his partner defended him, and they brought in Edwin Stanton, who was really brought in because he really understood the Washington, D.C. scene, I think. And Edwin Stanton, of course, eventually he practiced law some with Abraham Lincoln and was uh, in the government even at the time. But he would become Secretary of War during the, the Civil War. So that's the defense team going against a guy that doesn't have a lot of trial experience. The showdown was pretty lopsided. It didn't help the prosecution that the judge in the case seemed to rule in the defense's favor on almost every request. One notable exception was that the defense had wanted Teresa's handwritten confession entered into evidence. The prosecutors didn't, of course. And on this issue, the judge agreed, forbidding the letter to be shared with jurors. Sickles apparently told his lawyers he didn't want it released, but his lawyers believed it would help his case if the tawdry details of Teresa and Key's affair made their way into jurors' minds one way or another. So the defense leaked the letter to reporters, ensuring that it was published in newspapers literally worldwide. Newspapers in the UK that hadn't even written about the trial much somehow saw fit to print the confession word for word. It was the only way the defense figured they could get Sickles off. They, of course, couldn't argue that he didn't do it. It was broad daylight, there were many witnesses, and he confessed to everyone he ran into. And the defense also couldn't claim he was insane, which had been used as a defense in previous cases. In this case, Sickles couldn't plead insanity because people had interacted with him before and after the killing, and he was quite well aware of his surroundings and what he was doing. And so they argued that he was just temporarily insane. It's a very novel defense here in the Sickles case. 
The justice system was largely based on the United Kingdom's, and the UK had fairly recently dealt with a game-changing case of insanity. In that case, a Scottish guy named Daniel Naughton traveled to London to kill the prime minister because he said Tories in his country were harassing him and even plotting to murder him. To put a stop to it, he fired his gun when he thought he spotted Prime Minister Robert Peel, but it was actually Peel's secretary, Edward Drummond, who died from the gunshot five days later. Before Naughton, the English courts had only accepted an insanity defense if someone were obviously stark raving mad, like a wild beast. This case challenged that, because Naughton could very clearly articulate why he'd killed the man. But he was also clearly delusional. A new test was born to gauge insanity. Number one, did the defendant know what he was doing when he committed the crime? Or number two, did the defendant understand his actions were wrong? It was called the Naughton Test, and after being shipped overseas in 1843, its first real use in the U.S. was the Sickles case. It wasn't an apples-to-apples application because Naughton's insanity wasn't brief. He wasn't suddenly pushed to kill the prime minister. I mean, he'd been delusional for some time before and would continue to be afterward. Sickles, on the other hand, was just fine until that RPG letter arrived. And his lawyers argued he was fine after shooting Key as well, but not at the moment of the murder. Temporary insanity defense, because people were talking to Sickles before the shooting. They were talking to him after. In fact, he went and turned himself in in Franklin Square, the home of the attorney general. Everyone said he seemed fine. Mm-hmm. And so to argue insanity, they just say, well, it was temporary insanity, really just long enough for him to walk across this square and kill the U.S. attorney. It was, as Lance Geiger put it, literally an argument that it's OK to murder someone if you're just really, really mad. Sexism, of course, played a huge role in the case. Women were property, yada, yada, yada. A man could cheat all he wanted and his reputation would be just fine, but a woman having sex with someone other than her husband was grounds to declare her ruined. DeRose again. Everything is sort of set up uh, against Teresa. She's denied any sort of agency in the situation that, you know, they sort of talk about her sort of like a child who was taken advantage of. So on one hand, she has no agency, but on the other hand, she bears all of the blame. So she's the one who gets cast out of society. You could see the imbalance in the prosecutor's approach. The prosecutor never brought up the fact that Sickles was a notorious philanderer who was doing exactly what he had shot Barton Key for. It wasn't just that he that he cheated on his wife, that he did it with the wives of other men. Public opinion was split, but not evenly. It's reflected in the newspapers at the time. More people sided with Sickles, the killer, than with Key, the killed. And so did the jury. The 12 men who heard the case agreed that at the moment he pulled the trigger, Sickles didn't know right from wrong. He'd been driven temporarily mad by a man who had violated the so-called unwritten law that basically allowed a man to kill in defense of the sanctity of their home and the virtue of their women. Edwin Stanton did the closing argument, and he did this sort of prudish Victorian defense of the family. And I literally argue that that by killing Barton Key, he had saved all the women of Washington from this horrible philanderer, Barton Key. And when he finished this, this eloquent you know, defense of the family, it, it raised applause in the courtroom. DeRose, the author, said the case had lasting effects on the judicial system. About 100 years after the Sickles trial, 
And largely as a consequence of the Sickles trial, it was almost impossible to punish anyone who had killed their spouse's lover. There's something called the unwritten law. It was the most rigidly adhered to law in the country, and it, you couldn't find it in any rule book or in any case. But throughout the country, juries were getting rid of these charges if they were ever being charged at all. Governors were pardoning people. Judges were throwing cases out of court under these circumstances. While the law was never codified, jurors upheld it in case after case. You might remember Harry Thaw's acquittal for killing Stanley White from the Evelyn Nesbitt episode earlier this season. Jurors routinely gave men the right to kill their wives' lovers right up until the 1950s. And once society begrudgingly began to acknowledge that we women have agency, it was hard to argue that men had the right to kill their wives' lovers. And today, the general rule of thumb is that if you have time to consider what you're doing, you're probably doing it on purpose and could be found guilty of murder. If it's a spur-of-the-moment, act-of-passion type thing, you could get manslaughter, depending on the state. I mean, personally, I follow my own adage, don't murder people. Problem solved. A few postscripts to the story. Sickles went on to live a long and storied life, never really shaking off his tendency to be ruled more by emotion than logic. The Civil War came swiftly after his acquittal, and Sickles rose in the army to the rank of Major General. During the Battle of Gettysburg, he was ordered to take up a defensive position in one spot, but instead marched his men to a different spot that he liked better. The move stretched the Corps too thin, made the Union more vulnerable, cost Sickles his right leg to a cannonball, and nearly derailed the battle altogether. It was another good example of just how he lived his life, because he gets orders to take a position. He's like, I don't like this position. I'm smarter than you, and I don't care what you say. That's Josh Geiger, also of the History Guys. In a sort of funny twist, by this point in history, the public had kind of had it with Sickles. He still had plenty of allies to keep his political career afloat, but he had lost ground with the American people, and it actually had to do with the Barton Key affair. That's because after the trial, Sickles reconciled with Teresa. He forgave her. The two stayed married, and they reunited in New York with their daughter. This infuriated the public. DeRose sums up the outcry with an anecdote. There's this incident where a group of women are watching Sickles speak in Congress, and they can tell that well, the first woman says, boy, you know, that guy down there, who is he? He's being shunned by his colleagues. And the second woman says, oh, well, that's because he killed Barton Key. And the third woman says, no, that was all right. The problem is, is that he went back to his wife afterward. The thinking was, if the affair was so trivial that you could forgive your cheating wife, how could it also be so terrible that it was worth killing Barton Key over it? Sickles defended himself by saying he couldn't let the mother of his child be forever shunned by society. She had earned too much notoriety to be able to remarry, and so if he didn't forgive her, he'd be ensuring she and daughter Laura would be outcasts. He got so sick of people criticizing him that he wrote a letter to the New York Herald that was first printed there and then published nationwide in which he said, hey, this was my choice, and I stand by it. It turned out, though, that sparing Teresa from a tragic fate wasn't within Sickles' power. The woman whose love life had been splashed all over newspapers worldwide, who had lost a man she no doubt loved, however forbidden that love was, 
ended up dying at age 31 of consumption. To research this story, I read Chris DeRose's Star-Spangled Scandal, which I noticed gave ample credit to another book called American Scoundrel by Thomas Kennelly. I also read parts of Daniel Sickles' A Life by Gary Boulard. I used contemporary newspaper coverage as well, read more than I needed to about the Battle of Gettysburg, and saw videos of Sickles' amputated leg, which is still on display at the National Museum of Health and Medicine. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 